And so you can just see really quickly how much how much of that $600 a month can get eaten up really quickly by vacancy and capital expenses and turnover. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode and the interview with our best ever guests, I want to mention FundNet Flip because FundNet Flip is an online lender that gives you fast, convenient access to really affordable money that you need for your flip project. So if you're doing residential flips, then the main thing I imagine that you're focused on, uh, or the main two things, are the deal and the money. Uh, so if you've got the deal pipeline, but you need access to cash and you want to build a reputation within a, uh, a group that will continue to invest their dollars into your deals, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Uh, the, the founder of Fund That Flip is Matt Rodak, and he's actually one of my very first guests on the show. It's episode number seven. Um, so if you have a chance, go check that out too. familiarize yourself with Matt and um, what he's all about. But when you're needing money and you want an online lender that provides fast, convenient access to affordable capital for your flipping projects, then Fund That Flip's the way to go. Their team has over 200 deals under their belt, and uh, you can actually, this is crazy, you can actually be approved immediately within 30 seconds once you put in your information. Uh, so go to fundnetflip.com forward slash best ever and get some money for your flipping projects. Okay, here's a no-brainer. Since you're a real estate entrepreneur, you know that selecting a health insurance plan is a real pain and dealing with the whole process is a pain. That's why I've partnered up with Stride Health, and they make the whole process really easy, and they have a personal concierge service for you to help you out. They've got a fancy algorithm that helps find the right health plan just for you, and on average, they can save you 400 bucks a year, and it only takes 10 minutes. Go to stridehealth.com forward slash best ever. That's S-T-R-I-D-E-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com forward slash best ever. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Joe Fairless, and uh, welcome. I hope you're having a best ever day. And if not, then you're about to, because we've got a great episode coming at you. Today, we are going to be talking to a full-time real estate investor who's based in Clemson, South Carolina, who's, uh, by the way, shout out to Clemson. Congrats on the wonderful year in college football so far. How are you doing, Chad Carson? Yeah, I'm doing great, Joe. It's great to be here and great to be here with the best ever listeners. Yeah, nice to have you on the show, my friend. A little bit about Chad. He currently owns 57 residential units around in or around Clemson, South Carolina. And he was telling me before the show, he, there's about 12,000 people who live in Clemson. So pretty soon he's going to be the mayor of of Clemson by default, just because everyone's going to be living in properties that he owns. We would love that. But yeah, that's, <laughs> we, we, I like the small town, but it, it's, it's kind of like a big fish in a small pond. There you go. Well, I was, I was also listening to one of my favorite podcasts. It's Family Offices. And uh, the host is Richard Wilson. And he talks about working with millionaire, like 100 million plus millionaire families and he was talking about the ways that those families created their wealth. And one of the strategies they use is focusing in on a very narrow geographic location and just expanding from there, but staying 
focused and working on the inside out versus kind of sporadically going from one area to another. So well on your way you know, to, to having your own 100 million net worth family. <laughs> that, that's a good, that's a good uh, thing to set my sights on. But yeah, I, I definitely agree on the inside out and keeping it small and focused. That's been, that's worked really well for me. Well, what I'd like to do is if you can give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now, the only thing I'll say other than what I've mentioned already is that Chad used to speak German and he currently speaks Spanish in addition to English, obviously. So we might have to bust out the Spanish thing later. But with that being said, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more? Muy bien. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and start. <laughs> yeah, so uh, my story is that I've actually been doing, I've been a full-time real estate entrepreneur pretty much since I got out of college, which is, I guess, a little bit unique. But uh, I was, I was sort of like anybody else when they get out of school, yeah, what are you going to do with your life kind of thing. And I was a pre-med uh, major in college and also played football. And so I, I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And I figured, you know, I'm going to try to get into this real estate entrepreneurship. I read a book and said, you know, I really have nothing to lose. I own my car free and clear and I don't have any student debt. And so I got into it that way, just uh, sort of hustling. And and so I guess that's that's led me to be, I've kind of had my one foot in either part of the real estate business. I've always been a an entrepreneur who had to buy and sell and manage my own properties and flips, flip properties just to make money and put food on the table and to save money. But then my true love and kind of my long term where I spend more of my time now is on the long-term holds and the income properties and the multi, the small multi-units here in Clemson, and so that's so my story's been been both of those that I've been a I've used real estate to make a living and to save money and to make make a good living, but also what I think so many people use it for, whether they are full-time in real estate and are a professional or not, is owning investments that can produce some really really good, can steady income and can build wealth for you. How long since you graduated college? 2002 was my graduation year, and I started started doing this in 2003. Okay, so 2003, 2000, we're 2015, so quick math, 12 years. Yeah. So you've been doing this, see how fast, hey, see how smart yeah, I am. Yeah, you do some good math, that's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you've been doing this for 12 years, you have 57 units. Do you own those units, or do you have partners with those units? That's me and a partner, and we've been doing business together from the very beginning. And so he's uh, he he also has another business that he does as well. But pretty much we've been doing this full time since then together, and we uh, oh, we yeah. just have an, uh, you know LLCs that own the own those units. And most of our financing we we haven't had any other equity partners. Most of it has been private money, seller financing, some of those a little bit more creative techniques. We used to do a lot of leases as well. The main reason being was when I got out of college, you know, I was a nice guy and I could dress well and go present myself to a bank, but I didn't have a steady W-2 job and neither did he. And so we, we were forced pretty early on to get creative and um, talk to sellers, talk to uh, people who had IRA accounts. And, and our, our kind of cookie cutter was either the seller would have a, a mortgage or the private lender would have a mortgage and either first or second mortgage. And we would pay them just a monthly payment and interest. In the beginning, it was a lot higher than it is now. You know, we paid 10% interest or whatever we had to do in the beginning, whereas now it's much more competitive rates. Uh, but that's how we funded most of our deals from the beginning. Have you partnered with your partner this whole time? And either whatever your answer is, what does your partner bring to the table? Yeah, really good question. So early, it's, it's evolved. Early on, we were just two startup guys who... We, we divided the whole business and said, all right, here are all the different roles we're going to have to do in a, in a fix and flip business and in a wholesaling business. And we, we, did, we read the E-Myth. That was like one of the first books we read by Michael Gerber. And it said that you basically needed to look at your 
tiny little business that doesn't even exist yet as a corporation and, and delegate all of your tasks within the corporation. And so we, you know, I was the guy, I was the acquisitions guy. I was on the, on the ground talking to people, making offers, sending out letters, trying to buy the properties. I was also talking to all the private lenders and trying to get the money together. And so I had the kind of the first two parts of the funnel. And then he did the other parts. When we bought it, he would manage all the fixing up, making sure it all got put together and manage that project. And then he would manage either getting it rented or getting it sold. And so that's that was sort of our early, in addition to both of us putting money in, we didn't have a lot of money in the beginning. That was our, we, we just, we divided and conquered. But as it's gone, as it's evolved, I, I've been more involved in the day-to-day management of the properties now. And he's, he's a little bit more passive, but we both, it's, it's been a 50-50 arrangement, which is not always something that I think that everybody would be a good fit for everybody. But it's, in our case, particularly growing from nothing and then evolving to where we had, we could both put capital into it. It's, it's been a pretty good fit. You manage all 57 of your properties or your units? Yeah, well, we self-manage, yeah. And I do have a, we have a three-quarter time bookkeeper who does a lot for us, who does a lot of our putting signs out and taking calls from tenants, uh, taking maintenance calls, overseeing all the basic maintenance stuff. So we've sort of grown into that where we just have our own little business. But she uh, is just a remote business. So we work out of, I have an office in my basement with a a laptop and filing cabinets. And then she logs onto the computer remotely and we have a remote management uh, software and almost everything. You know, we have rent paid online, rent paid at the local Walmart, we have a PO box. And so it's, it's really kind of a low overhead business with a, that one kind of key person plus a team of contractors and subcontractors. How long have you had the bookkeeper? And you said, I, I smile when I use the term bookkeeper because I'm use, use, that's the term you use, but she's doing a whole lot other than just keeping yeah. books. So she's like fielding maintenance calls. Yeah. And put, you said putting out signs. Yeah. Does that mean that she's putting like the marketing materials out? <laughs> yeah, she started off as a bookkeeper and she sort of grew into other jobs. You know, we we'd ha- we hired her to, just to come and check our mail and just enter, enter some basic bookkeeping stuff every week, like 10 hours a week. And then, you know, she just was really competent. And so we said, well, here's some other tasks that we do. And it started off just, you know, with rentals is you, if, you're ma- if you're managing your rentals, there are going to be some people who don't pay their rent on time. That happens. And so we would ask Curtis to kind of chase them down, send them text messages, call them and she was sort of our collections person, and that was the next step up from bookkeeping. And she did that pretty well, and we said, well, all right, well, here's some other tasks. And so it, it, it kind of went it fit into our, our plan. We had to decide whether we wanted to outsource it all or whether we wanted to make a little bit of money ourselves with the management, particularly during the downturn, 2007, 8, 9, 10, when you have to just kind of squeeze your pennies a little bit. It was easier for us to do that and do a few things ourselves and then sort of slice up the management business into pieces and delegate that to whoever was the right person at the time. And so she's, she's kind of added her pieces on. She's at, she started off with bookkeeping, got into collections, got into maintenance calls, got into helping us with the turnovers as well. You have 57 property. And are they 57 properties or is it 57 units? No, that's units. So that's, you know, some okay. of we have a biggest one we have is a 12 unit and then we have some quadru- a quadruplex and some duplexes and and then single family houses and some mobile homes as well. Got it. Okay. So you have 57 units. Have you purchased them evenly throughout these 12 years or have there been big chunks of purchases at once? Yeah, that's a good question. They, 
2007 was a huge chunk for us. I, I think it's been like up and down. Uh oh, 2007. Yeah, yeah. We, so you, you know about that. So 2007, we were on fire, and that was kind of something that I, I thought would be interesting for your listeners to hear about. But it was we really, really ramped it up in 2007, and we had uh, 48 closings in that one year, where in some of those were multiple properties at those closings. And for us, at least, I mean, that's that's a really high volume game. I mean, we we were, you know, closing, buying and selling, buying rentals, and so. By the end of that year, you know, we had doubled or tripled the number of units we had, and we really had to kind of step back and think about what we were going to do with our business, what we're going to do, what, what, what's our business model. What, we were almost too successful for our own good, and um, but we 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 stopped and kind of paused at the end of that year and thought about it and looked at what we what we wanted, and some of the deals we bought were really really good. I mean, they were sort of our niche at that time was I told you it was a lot of seller financing, so I, I got uh, there was a lot of just small houses and small multi-units where the seller was kind of a burned out landlord and they just wanted to get out of the business. And so it was a nice transition to ask them to finance the property to me. And they typically needed work. And so I'd put some cash into them to fix them up. And then they would finance them maybe over the next 10 to 15 years. And so we'd have a a seller financing note that would amortize in 15 years if we just held on to it. And so that was a big chunk that we had to sort of swallow and (laughs) digest after 2007. Um, But we also got some properties that we got, our eyes got too big and they were either, they were not in the right locations. We really kind of got off of our target market that we were really searching for. And so we bought some, some tough management kind of properties that we just had to struggle, struggle with either just because of bad tenants or because of bad cash flow for about four or five years up until now when we could finally liquidate some of the bad stuff and recycle it. And so that led us up till the last two years when we finally recycled some of that stuff and moved some of those properties off the books, we were able to buy some some new multi-unit deals the last two years. And so this has been our sec- our kind of other bigger chunk has been the last two or three years buying those kinds of properties. Wow. So interesting, especially to hear the the differences in where you were before the crash, where you're at now, or where you were right after and what you're focused on now. So if I heard you correctly, you were doing, I mean, you had 48 closings in 2007. So you're doing a, a high volume. Right. You got away in some cases from what had worked for you previously. Mm-hmm. You got off target, to use your words, from what you'd work previously. So some bad tenants and bad cash flow. Then it, it took a little while for those homes to at least get to a point where you could sell them, which sounds like that was recently. Yep. And now you're focused on more newer, larger properties. Is that right? Yeah, we've moved up a little bit. I think we, it's, it's really interesting. I heard one of your other calls where somebody was talking about kind of moving up to quality. And I think that's yeah. that's certainly been our experience. And I don't know that there's necessarily a bad thing early on because we bought some pretty high cash flow, but high management type properties, which, you know, maybe that's what kept us alive during the, you know, we kind of balanced that out with some other properties during during the tough times. But at the same time, we, when we looked at it and I'm all about sort of measuring your return on time and your return on money. And the return on time was not not good on some of those kind of properties. Whereas, you know, now with some of the higher quality properties, maybe they don't pencil as well as the other ones seem to do up front. But but there's a lot of behind the scenes numbers that didn't pan out until we finally owned those properties and saw how how what they really look like. And for example, my vacancy rates on some of these higher quality properties are almost zero. I mean, this is amazing for the last five years, particularly in my town, the university has been growing. So we've had some kind of other dynamics going on, but almost zero vacancy. 
and some of my best properties, the tenants will talk to their friends before they leave and their friends are contacting me six months before the other tenant moves out saying, I would love to rent that apartment. Can I rent that apartment? I just, that blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful, it's, it's just a beautiful phone call to receive. <laughs> I just, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I think that you definitely have a good juxtaposition or a good contrast, I should say, of properties, or at least you did. Now you're kind of getting away from the ones that you didn't enjoy as much. Can you give us just some specifics as far as maybe numbers, year built, things like that of a bad property that you've had and a property where you get in that phone call where someone wants to move in, even though that someone hasn't moved out yet? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to kind of compare and contrast the two of them. Um, in, in my part of South Carolina, and I don't know how, how this, I guess there can be equivalent properties in other parts of the country, but we used to have in the 1920s, these old mill villages. And these were textile mills where you'd have one big factory in the middle. And then the, the company would build a bunch of little houses, just, you know, thousand square foot, 1200 square foot houses all around them. And these are all sold to private individuals, like in the 40s or whenever, whenever the textile mills moved overseas. And so we have a bunch of these. These are kind of your lower end houses in some areas. And they're also the houses that become gentrified and, you know, kind of turn around in, in the nicer areas. The long story short is we bought some of those mill houses and some of them have been just fine. But those are the ones that we really underestimated capital expenses, the way how much you'd have to reinvest capital expenses, even if you buy a property for like 20 grand, you know, you get it super cheap. It rents for five or 600 bucks, but you just, it's really difficult to figure out how much the vacancy is going to be on that $600 rental. You know, if you had a, a 15% vacancy because your tenant, you can't attract a good tenant and they keep moving out every year or you have to kick them out every year, you're, you're losing two or three months of rent because it's vacant when they're, you're having to kick them out. They're probably tearing the property up and doing several thousand dollars worth of damage. And then it's an older property, and so maybe you didn't fix it up all the way. You get all the systems up the way they should be, like a new house in the very beginning. And so you can just see really quickly how much how much of that $600 a month can get eaten up really quickly by vacancy and capital expenses and turnover. And you really you can you almost get to the point where you can't you cannot make good money on some of these cheap properties. I have found, and so it's it's more like a it's not an investment. It's more like you want to get into the business of owning some mill houses. Okay, you can basically pay yourself for your time, and it's not going to be that good of a job. And so that's the, those are the numbers we looked at. I mean, if you if you just wanted to look at your return on capital, you might be getting like a six percent return on your capital when it's all said and done. When you thought you were going to get a fifteen percent return on your capital, just generally, or you can give a specific example. What's a purchase price of a property like that? I mean, you all day long, you know that probably 20 to 30,000 bucks on those kind of, I mean, not all day long. You're going to, I mean, they might be listed at 40 or 50, but then you're going right. to, you can find foreclosure deals and fixer upper deals and other investors who realize the same thing. I just realized that it's, it's not <laughs> a good deal. You know? And I'm asking this question just for, just to hear what the numbers are on the surface. And you've already given us like the insider's perspective on it. But on the surface, you've got a twenty dollars to $30,000 house that you acquisition price. Then what are the rents usually? Well, I'd say, you know, 500 would be a kind of a 500, 600 is what I said. So let's just use, let's even use optimistic numbers. Let's use 600 bucks. And I bet, it, I bet the numbers will still not play out that well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then do you generally have to put money into it to get people or to have it to be moving ready? Yeah. So if you bought it, let's say you bought it for 20 grand. I mean, you're definitely gonna put 10 grand in there into the house. 
you're definitely going to paint and flooring. You're definitely going to have some outside, you know, some maintenance plumbing, plumbing kind of issues. So, I mean, minimum 10, you know, you might put 15 or more into it. And what year in your area are these homes built? 1920s to 1940s, maybe. Holy cow. Those are old. Okay. Now let's talk about one of the, your nice properties. Can you give us some specifics on that? Yeah. So let me give you an example. So I bought a, I think there's a couple different properties that fit that comparable, but we, we bought another old property. So we'll, we'll just compare apples with apples. We bought two duplexes that are right in the downtown area of my university town, Clemson, South Carolina. And so they're also old properties, but it was a, it was a landlord who was kind of done with them and and that there were students who were living there. And it was not exactly like a major value-added kind of project. It wasn't a major rehab, but it was, you know, the outside needed painting. The roof needed to be replaced, had some leaks on it. Um, the insides were actually pretty nice, had hardwood floors. But the, the difference here, and so the difference between this property and that other one was we, you know, that some of the major capital expenses we allocated up front. We said, we're going to put a roof on, okay. We're going to, we actually put a, a pretty nice the a vinyl siding actually fit in this this neighborhood a little bit, and so we put a kind of lower lower maintenance siding on it. It had a wood siding with peeling paint and things like that before, and so we made it very low maintenance and put all our money into it up front. We paid about three hundred thousand dollars for those two duplexes, and we also put about fifty grand into it. So just round numbers, three hundred fifty thousand bucks. When we first bought the property, we were getting just shy of five hundred dollars. For students, so and I had I'm thinking out loud for you, Joe. Yep. <laughs> but it's uh, so we had four thousand bucks. So four thousand bucks when we got it all kind of stabilized after we bought it, we had three hundred fifty thousand dollars invested. Four hundred thousand dollars. I mean, four thousand dollars per month was the kind of gross rent. One point one. Yeah. When you look at that, you know, divide the uh, cash flow by the the purchase price and improvement. So mm-hmm. four thousand divided by three fifty. But it gets better. I can sense yeah, it. Okay. It gets, it gets now better. what? <laughs> so that was that was a couple of years ago, and this is one of those kind of properties, Joe, where I had the tenants like just waiting in line to have their friends live there, and then we had other people who weren't their friends, kind of trying to outbid them to try to get the properties because it's so close to all the to the core of, of the town, and every town has this. Whether you're like an urban town urban kind of flavor, kind of rental, or whether you're a suburban, you know, you, the closer you are to the most desirable things in your town, like a school or like a downtown district with coffee shops or with a university, the, the better it gets in my experience. And so this one, we paid a little bit of a premium, supposedly, but then two years later, our rents, now that we're, we're about to try to renew rents for next year, and we're, we're looking at $1,300 per unit instead of $1,000 per unit. So we're you know, quick math on that. That's almost five thousand dollars per month instead of the or what we had just started with a couple of years ago. Oh, that will put a smile on your face. <laughs> it, it does. <laughs> How'd you acquire that? Pro- How, well, you said you paid a premium. You you allegedly paid a premium at closing, so you kind of knew that you're buying something hot. And how did you find it? And then how did you finance it? Sure. All right. So finding it for me, almost all my deals these days are referrals. And so this was a, this was actually a commercial broker who this was a, this was too small of a deal for him. He he was looking for big you know hundred unit properties or something bigger that his clients could chew, uh, could chew on. This was a three hundred thousand dollar purchase. Even though it was a really good location, it was just it just wasn't in their kind of their radar. And so he just referred it to me. He knew that if I bought these uh, smaller 
deals, I would send him a referral fee, which is what I did. And I did all the negotiation and talked to the seller. And like I said, he was a long time landlord who lived in the neighborhood nearby the property and was just kind of done with it, ready to retire. And so it was pretty straightforward negotiation. He had a price that he wanted. I said, okay, I'll, I'll pay that price. Uh, you know, usually you're supposed to offer a little bit less than, you know, not to go back and forth a little bit. So he doesn't think he, he offered too little, but I really thought that location was, was what it was. And I just, I jumped on it and said, when can we meet to get this thing under contract? And so we put it under contract and this was a little bit of, a, of an anomaly deal financing for me uh, where, because we, we put together a few partners and it was all equity instead of getting any kind of debt financing. And so we, uh, we actually did an IRA, a self-directed IRA uh, deal on this one. So I don't, um, it, was at, it was several partners. We, we brought in, I found the deal, but we found a general partner who had wanted to do some deals with me. And he is, he's, we have an LLC. He's the managing partner of this LLC. He put up half the capital and then me and my business partner and our, our family put up the other half of the capital. And so we had to raise about 350000 in cash or 300000 in cash to buy it and then a little bit more to fix it up. And then uh, so right now we just that's that's what it is. We just have a 100 percent equity position. And we're thinking, though, the, the interest. The other thing that's even more interesting about this deal, Joe, is that not only the numbers and the rent increase, but I looked at the zoning and it's kind of one of those in town areas where we have four units currently on a half acre property, but the half acre is zoned the most dense multi-unit zoning we have in our area. And so really I could put about 18 units if I wanted to, we could, we could blade the whole thing and build a 18 unit apartment building and get really nice premium rents for a brand new building in a, in a core kind of downtown area. And so someday we're kind of thinking that we're, we're thinking about refinancing here before long and maybe figuring out another spot on the on that property to build a few more units just to get some more income right now. But the exit strategy 20 years from now will be just to find the right time whenever it's the perfect kind of condo time and maybe build, you know, tear down everything, build some really nice condos, sell those condos for a premium price and make a huge, huge cut at the very end. I didn't expect this conversation to take this direction. What a treat. <laughs> so you basically brought in partners and did a joint venture for the deal. What is, you said they put up half of the money, you and your side put up the other half. Is it a 50-50 split or do you get a premium because you were organizing everything? No, I didn't actually. I, didn't, you know, and I, I know I could and other deals I, ha- I would and have, but in this particular one, I'm just... I'm a, I'm a 50%, 50% owner. And what are the responsibilities for each party? So I have no responsibilities other than our yearly meeting and kind of advising here and there, which is why I don't, haven't taken another cut. The, the managing partner has more of the day-to-day kind of financials and paying the bills or dealing with the property manager. And we do have a third-party property manager managing this one, not me. Okay, got it. So the the GP, the general partner is responsible for the asset management. Correct. And then you basically brought some money, you found the deal, and then it's passive for you, and then you've got the third-party property management company. Exactly, yep. Cool, wow, so interesting. What, a, what an interesting story. So many takeaways here, and I've been taking notes and I'll summarize them at the very end. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? Well, yeah, so I thought about this one a little bit, and 
hearing some of the other guests. And I think for me, it's, you know, we've talked about some specific strategies here and financing and acquisitions, but I think the biggest, biggest advice for me is that when you go into your real estate business, whether you're a really small investor and kind of mom and pop, sort of like the model that we are, or whether you're really big, I have found that, that the biggest mistake you can make is trying to play somebody else's game, trying to use somebody else's business model instead of your own. And so that, that was sort of what we did in 2007 when I told you we really had that ramp up was that we were running with somebody else's business model and saying, we want to buy 50 deals in a year and we want to get big, which is, you know, it's cool. That's great. That's exciting. But the thing we found at the end of that year when we were really busy was that we had sort of ignored our personal goals when it came to building our, our real estate goals. And so my, my main advice is to like start with your personal, your life goals and then work it backwards to create a business model that actually meets those. And it might be that the business models that your buddies do or that the people in your mastermind group does, you know, it might be that those are the ones you need, but it might be that you need a really simple and small business model because that's all it takes to cover your overhead and do what you need. And you can go start a nonprofit, you can go travel, you can go, you know, do what we, we've done, take some sabbatical trips. And so I think that's that's the that's been one of the biggest takeaways for me is that this I love the entrepreneurial game and I love real estate investing because it's like a it's like a blank palette on a on a painter's easel you know you can paint it however you want and you're going to listen to people like Joe and like me and you're going to get bits and pieces here of information but you're ultimately the one who has to paint this picture none of us and so kind of start with what's important for you and then build that business around that whole kind of why that makes you tick. Oh, I love this so much. All right, Chad, you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you need money for your flipping project, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. You'll know within 30 seconds if you're approved or not to get money for your residential flip. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever book you've read. I'm going old school here. One of the first self-help books I read was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I keep rereading that book from Stephen Covey, and I get little nuggets every time I read it. It's just a really good kind of fundamentals book on how to communicate and how to think and kind of put your personal philosophy together. Best ever personal growth experience and what you learn from it? During that run-up period that I told you about earlier, I overbid on a property at an auction. And I just got, you know, I got kind of emotional about a deal and I've never done that. I feel like I'm usually under control and rational. And, <laughs> and so I think that was my biggest growth experience is I realized that I'm susceptible. You know, I, I need to, I need to keep discipline and particularly with real estate, when you have some big purchases to, you know, to be super disciplined and super rational about your choices and make sure the numbers work and make sure you have people looking at your deal with you, not just you getting excited at an auction and trying to compete with somebody. Is that the guideline or the um, kind of the bumper that you put in place is have other people look at the deal in addition to you before you go to an auction? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I think I, I like to have that control and balance. I, mean, I feel pretty good about my expertise and my ability to analyze it. But that taught me that even so, you know, I was super busy. I had tons, tons of deals going here and there and everybody is susceptible to slip ups. And so I, I like to, my business partner, of course, is always in on a deal I have a, men, a couple mentors locally who are old time investors who know experienced stuff. My dad, I like to have like four or five eyes, particularly on a big deal, look at it with me, kind of my inner circle before I do anything. And that's that's been my rule. Best ever project you're most excited about right now? I think just in general, we're, we're sort of, I've told you, we're moving into some different kinds of projects, making some offers on some bigger multi-unit properties. 
and that's that's exciting. That's sort of a new new phase for us. So I think nothing's I have two or three and kind of in the cooker, but nothing's come about in this this part of the year. But that's that's part of the fun of the chase. I like that. Best ever way you like to give back? I've had a lot of fun working in my community. I mentioned I'm in a small town, and so I'm, I'm actually on our planning commission now, and I've helped with some other people here in town. We we started a nonprofit to try to make a greenway. So like a biking, multi-use path kind of greenway. It was just something we felt was like a really big gap and need in our community. And so that was, that's been a fun project. I've helped start the nonprofit. I'm the president of the nonprofit. And we're actually, I'm going tonight to the city council's voting on approving, funding our master plan to sort of build this trail in the whole town. So that's been pretty cool. Well, well, best of luck tonight. And hopefully you'll be biking all over Clemson (laughs) in the new Green Pass. Exactly. Best ever way you like to give back? I think that's part of it. And the other thing I do, I write a lot now. I've, I've you know, I used to teach some classes at a local RIA club, but um, I've been, been writing. So I've been trying to give a lot of free information away and just share my thoughts with people and doing what, you know, people like you are doing on this podcast, just helping people out by sharing experiences, both good and bad, and, and then helping people get into the business and build their business and sort of benefit from the real estate cash flow like we have. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Oh boy, lots of lots of those. But um, I think it goes back to my, you know, setting my goals and, and building my real estate business around my life goals. You know, we, we sort of I don't regret what we did. I think we I think we made money and we moved forward. But I think it could have been a lot smoother if we would have been more clear for four or five years in a row on what we're trying to accomplish and what this money is going to do for us. I think we would have done a few things differently. So I think that's sort of a bigger picture mistake. And there's been a, hundreds of little mistakes in between there. And what's the best ever place the best ever listeners can reach you? I do all my writing at, at coachcarson.com. And so that's, that's my place. I play on the internet and I share a, a something called the Business Money Life Project where I take all these books that I've been reading and I summarize them and share some cool ideas like the seven habits of highly effective people. I'll share some of my favorite ideas from that book in my weekly newsletter there. Well, Chad, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad and grateful that we were able to catch up and you're able to share your advice with the best ever listeners. And, you know, boy, talking about these 57 residential units that you have in or around Clemson, South Carolina, it's the theme for me is stay local and dominate. (laughs) You're so specific in what you're focused on in terms of geography and then also the type of product you've been purchasing, single-family homes. Now you're scaling up right. now. But the relationships that you've built mm-hmm. in this in this area, and you've got a thriving university that you're tied into. You, I, you said you played football. Did you play for Clemson? I did, yeah. I was a middle linebacker back in the day. If you saw me in person, you wouldn't recognize me. I'm like 40 pounds skinnier than I was in the day. But <laughs> Oh, yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. It's a good thing they didn't go the opposite direction. Yeah, all, all my teammates went the opposite direction. They look like... Of they, course, <laughs> yes. Well, they need to drink some green drinks or more water, substitute some water for some meals. Yeah. But yeah, the, it, it's just been... It's been very clear that you've just really leveraged the connections and the community um, while, while giving and contributing to the connections, your friendships and the community at the same time. And having access to some of these deals, knowing the area incredibly well, identifying good opportunities. I mean, if if a an investor looking at a deal from the outside were to come across that 
that property that you have, the duplex, right. and the offer price was three hundred, and they knew they'd have to put in three fifty. They might not. I mean, perhaps, but they might not be as inclined as you are right. to be like, yeah, I'll, I'll pay offer price. I'll put fifty thousand, and here's a potential right. because you're so darn familiar with this area. And I, I just, it's it's pretty cool to see that versus you know other things. And, and quite frankly, I don't take that approach. At least I haven't in the past, and right. that's why perhaps one of the reasons why I, I'm so fascinated by your approach is just you've you've been in the area for so darn long. Appreciate that. And you're just growing. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And, and um, some of the specific examples and advice that you talked about, you know, that duplex with the you know, 300, you bought, paid for 300, put 50 in it, was 5,000 total rent every month. Now it's going to be around six or 5,000, was 4,000 total. Right. Uh, now it's going to be about 5,000. Then how you finance it, you put a group together, you got a, a GP, a general partner, they put in half of the money. You and some other people put in the other half. You have no responsibilities other than some annual meetings. But really, it's, it's kind of a passive play for you. And I'm right. sure the lights went off whenever you, the light bulb went off in your head whenever you put that together. Like, wait a second. Hey, so I, I could do, yeah. <laughs> I know. You, yeah, I've been watching some of you guys doing the, doing these big syndications and things. And I've, I've always played, you know, I've just I've kind of played singles and doubles and done my thing. But that, that was like, wow, this is, this is interesting. And. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's wherever we we start to overlap because that that's whenever I can empathize with you. It's like, yep, that makes a whole lot of sense to do do it this way. And I think in the future you're going to be more on the general partnership side and be more active probably in the asset management when you do the larger deals because they'll want your expertise since you know the area so darn well. Right. They'll want you to be more involved. But stay local and dominate certainly. I, I think is the biggest theme. And dominate might have a negative connotation. So I'll say, you know, stay local and contribute. There we go. <laughs> I think that, that certainly is encapsulates what, what you've done. So thank you. And also, I, I like the start your with your life goals, then work backwards to find something that meets those. So perhaps a, a call to action for the best ever listeners is and myself is uh, let's let's list out what our life goals are and let's make sure that are uh, that we can map back to that or as you said you know use the analogy of the blank canvas and you can i'm terrible at art so i'll i'll, I'll do a map <laughs> i'll draw versus paint but uh, really create your your life how you want to create it by identifying what type of real estate investing makes the most sense what type of time commitment are you are you ready to undertake and what do you need to do so so thanks so much for being on the show sharing your advice yeah. and i hope you have a best ever week yeah, this is great to be here. Thanks, thanks, Joe. I look forward to staying in touch. I want to mention Fund That Flip because Fund That Flip is an online lender that gives you fast, convenient access to really affordable money that you need for your flip project. So if you're doing residential flips, then the main thing I imagine that you're focused on uh, or the main two things are the deal and the money. Uh, so if you've got the deal pipeline, but you need access to cash and you want to build a reputation within a, uh, a group that will continue to invest their dollars into your deals, then go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Uh, the, the founder of Fund That Flip is Matt Rodak, and he's actually one of my very first guests on the show. It's episode number seven. Um, so if you have a chance, go check that out too. familiarize yourself with Matt and um, what he's all about. But 
when you're needing money and you want an online lender that provides fast, convenient access to affordable capital for your flipping projects, then Fund That Flip's the way to go. Their team has over 200 deals under their belt. And uh, you can actually, this is crazy, you can actually be approved immediately within 30 seconds once you put in your information. Uh, so go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever and get some money for your flipping projects. Okay, here's a no-brainer. Since you're a real estate entrepreneur, you know that selecting a health insurance plan is a real pain and dealing with the whole process is a pain. That's why I've partnered up with Stride Health and they make the whole process really easy and they have a personal concierge service for you to help you out. They've got a fancy algorithm that helps find the right health plan just for you and on average they can save you 400 bucks a year and it only takes 10 minutes. Go to stridehealth.com forward slash best ever. That's S-T-R-I-D-E-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com forward slash best ever.